Hello. When we think of Oxford, we tend to think of the city created by the university, with its dreaming spires and architecture of learning. But there is a whole lot more to explore. Oxford is also the Hollywood of stories and a melting pot of cultural diversity, says author Sylvia Vetter. Welcome to Creative Conversations, the Tiger Spirit podcast exploring creativity in all its forms. This episode is also part of Oxford Moments, a multimedia blog about Oxford, its people and places. I'm Yang Mei Ui. I'm an author and podcaster. Today, my guest is Sylvia Vetter, who is an author and speaker based in Oxford. Sylvia Vetter, thank you very much for joining me on Creative Conversations. Well, thank you very much for asking me. Now, you're a resident of Oxford, um, but your books are often have cross-cultural themes. Uh, for example, um, Sculpting the Elephant, one of your many books, um, which is set in Oxford and India. What draws you to stories across cultures? Well, it's something I think I've had since very early childhood. Now, I'm of a working class background, born in Luton. And at the age of seven, I discovered libraries. And I, my, I would walk every Saturday afternoon two miles to Luton Central Library. I had nobody to guide me as to which books to choose. So sure, I had plenty of Enid Blyton, but I also <laughs> took out books on India and China in particular. I was really drawn to them. And I think it was the artistic styles, the colours, just transporting me to a different world. And my parents never left me sure. So it is a bit surprising that I married an Indian and my brother uh, married a, a nice Chinese lady. So <laughs> it's weird. My poor father, who was a very tolerant man, said, we're becoming like the United Nations. <laughs> so, um, however, the idea that a working class girl from Luton could become an author was ridiculous. Um, once I got a bike, I used to cycle down to a tiny museum in Luton, and my parents saved up a lot of money to buy Arthur Mee's Children's Encyclopedias. And any wet day, I would be going to an often particularly looking at history and so that was how I got into history but if you had told that girl that she'd become the director of an art and antique center she would have had no idea she would have said you were balmy but she might have gone to her encyclopedias to try and find out what you were talking about and so yeah I, so I passed the 11 plus if I hadn't I wouldn't be talking to you today the reality is I would not have had the life that I've had. But chance encounters change things. So basically, the idea of me meeting Atom in Smedic in 1963, um, the chances of it were zero, I think, for both of us, our journeys there. In fact, I'm currently 
writing my memoir and it just seemed to me astounding and that was it. I think we all have chance encounters that change our lives and that was the one that changed changed mine, connected me to India. I'm going to interrupt you because there's so much in what you've just said and, and we'll come back um, and delve into your romantic story meeting Atom as a chance encounter and how that changed your life in just a, a, a bit. But what I want to go back to, which is I think a really um, important thing in this particular period in our lives, is the influence of a library on your life, on your young life, and that you had in that moment, that's, um, you know, you were in a small world. Um, and as you said, you, you know, you, uh, from a working class, class background, you didn't think you could um, become a director of an antiques uh, company and become an author. Um, and but but the beginning was in books and in a library. And I think I, I just want to say, you know, for me, the British Council Library in Kuala Lumpur, where I grew up, um, was also a, a, a gateway to a, a world out there that was amazing. And I, I had the opposite experience to you because you, that library opened up the world of Asia to you. Um, the British Council Library opened up the world of, of Britain and, and Europe. Um, and and how how important do you feel, um, you know, are libraries and books for young people, especially today? Well, I helped save 20 Oxfordshire libraries. Um, it was decided during austerity that 20 of them would be closed and they were all in villages and I live in Kennington on the edge of Oxford and in suburbs. I was so angry because it's fine if you're a fairly wealthy middle-class parent you can buy books for your children. My parents couldn't, they tried, they wanted me to read. My father was a very intelligent man, an inventor and he belong to the left-wing book club and if you look at the titles of those books you'd read them now for a degree uh, but he left school at 14 so they couldn't afford to buy me books so that my only access to books was libraries and without those I wouldn't have passed my level class so I was so angry about this and because of the castaway series this 10-year series I did for the Oxford Times in which I sent interesting and, ins and inspirational people to a mythological island, Oxtopia. I knew the illustrator, Corky Paul. Now, if you've ever seen Corky with children, they just love him. And I knew he was keen on life, and so I got in touch with him. I said, Corky, we need you. <laughs> I knew the kids in Kennington were very keen. Now, other groups had done political meetings and of course they were just taken on a little trip. I decided we wouldn't do that. We would have a community event and we would have a Pied Piper procession from the school to the village centre, led by Corky, with all the kids with banners, posters, musical instruments and a flautist. And so we did and it was 300 yards long so the TV came, the radio came, the press came. And the hall was absolutely chocker. But we invited Keith Mitchell to tea, right? So there was no, polit no politics whatsoever. So the parents gave him like 600 letters. The, the children gave him their posters and letters. And we let him speak. 
But then we gave him tea, but we wouldn't let him go. He had to sit and watch Corky read to the children because we were full of children. The other meetings were all adults. We had babies to 90. So basically, so they, he had to sit and watch these kids absolutely enthralled. And then I persuaded the local children's choir called Music Mayhem to sing. Now, the, the uh, director said, well, you know, I'm not sure if it's political. I said, no, it's a community event. So they sang, consider yourself at home. Consider yourself one of the family. Well, that man, I've never seen anyone so embarrassed in my life. And that day he changed his mind. And I think that's one of the things I'm most proudest of having done. But I couldn't have done it without Corky. Corky was, um, you know, Corky was just uh, an inspiration. That's a wonderful story. And actually, it, it, you know, it comes from, you know, your background as a storyteller um, and that a community event that creates a mood, a moment. And we see, I, I, I was picturing as you were telling the story, you know, all the kids there um, and how important reading um, is uh, and that sense of community that libraries bring. Um, and, and that it is actually beyond politics. It's about you know the future of uh, children, the future of 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 us, of all of us. Um, so um, I'm going to pick up castaways because you brought that uh, up and in, in in a moment. But we're going to go back to what you were saying about because um, there's so much. I was just jumping about, but it's wonderful. Um, so about how you how you met your husband Adam and um, how um, that sort of cross cultural uh, threads um, have woven into your life and into your into your writing. Well, I took my A levels at seventeen. And I um, applied to do BSN. But when I got up to Mortlake, Alex Dixon, who founded BSN, realized that I was too young. He said, I've um, just started CSV, Community Service Volunteers, and they need people to teach immigrant children English as a second language in Smedic, and you'll get some training. So I was sent off to Smedic. Similarly, Atom had managed to, he, he wouldn't have been able to afford to leave India, but he got a job that um, the Americans uh, set up in Ethiopia. And from Ethiopia, he saved quite a lot of money because he was paid quite well and came to England wanting to do his PhD. And he, he talked for a while in Nuneaton and all his experiences there were good. There was no discrimination. He was treated well. And he then started to do his PhD in Birmingham, but realised after the first year he hadn't actually got enough money to live on for the next year. So he took a job in Smithing. Now, this year, in 1964, it was described as the most racist election in British history, and it was. And... A friend of mine said, oh, there's this Indian teacher at, uh, at Holly uh, Lodge Grammar School who wants to start a multiracial youth club. Would you help? Now, by this time, I'd already met the Sikhs and the Gurdwara because I didn't have much money. And they feed you for free in a Gurdwara or you just turn up on a Sunday. <laughs> and uh, so I said, let's meet at the Gurdwara at 2 p.m. on Sunday. And we did. And he came up on 
um, a Vespa, you know, an Italian. The very 60s. <laughs> yes. And uh, I, I didn't stand a chance, really. Um, but, but it was... It was a very racist time and we faced a lot of racism, which I'm writing about in my memoir, actually. And but that's the coincidence of us meeting. But in some ways, it wasn't romantic. You understand it was and we had to make up our mind quite quickly. In some ways, uh, that year stole my youth because I was, you know, plunged into a world I recognised because I'd done A-level history and I recognised these immigrants, they would come because of us. Be not only because we were in India, but because we partitioned India. Now, you mentioned your Castaways series. Um, can you tell us more about that? Because that's more focused on um, sort of interesting and, and um, uh, famous people uh, in, in Oxford. Well, my writing career which I'd never expected to have, started with me writing about art and antiques. I became the art and antiques writer for the Oxford Times and for their magazine called Limited Edition. So to begin with, I just wrote a different kind of feature each month. But after three years, I thought I've got to have a series because I can't keep it up otherwise. So I started with every... Um, uh, with with antiques time machine and then the ask the experts and then every antique tells a story well when that one was coming to the end i had to think of another one so originally i thought of the castaway series around the art and objects that people and books that people would choose to go on the desert island so that's why my first cast was Christopher Brown, who is the director of the Ashmolean. And in fact, his, if you look at the books, the first feature is about the objects. He didn't really talk about himself. But as this series evolved, it became about the people and much more than about the objects. So in fact, when Christopher retired, I suggested he'd be the only castaway to be castaway twice. So this time we would talk about him and we did. So, and I think it was fairly unique because I, Oxford is still rather town and gown. And I have links across those. Also, Atom, of course, was not at Oxford University. He was at Oxford Brooks, because we do have two universities in Oxford. So in a way, I could bridge all these gaps. Uh, Atom was a mathematician and, and you know, scientist. And uh, so I got, I could get into almost any kind of bit of Oxford, really. And in fact, I think it is unique because the castaways, the 120 castaways come from five continents and they are town and gown and county and of every color and every religion. Uh, they all have something in common. They wouldn't, I don't think, like to be called celebrities. I think they would all like you to think of them as having achieved something. And so you are not a, a native of Oxford. You came to Oxford um, uh, and uh, um, 
and, and I'm imagining that's um, Atom working at Oxford Brooks, and you started um, doing uh, um, working in antiques, which is how you became the uh, columnist, columnist um, writing about that that uh, that world. Um, over your years um, living in Oxford, um, and I, of course I ask you this because uh, I've I've just moved to Oxford, um, and uh, I, uh, I I was a student here and I loved it. It's a very beautiful city, um, and it's creative and it's intellectual and there's so so much going on. Um, but I I would love to hear about your what you what your relationship with Oxford is and 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 why it inspires you so much. Yeah, but again, I, I did a, a, a lecture, which if people can actually watch if they want online, for the Oxford tour guides who can't actually work at the moment. And it was based upon castaways. But again, it was the idea that there is life beyond the colleges. And so I actually start in St. Thomas's, which was the, and St. Jericho, who were the working class areas of Oxford. Um, but yeah, I think... Oxford, for me, is the Hollywood of stories. If you think about it, it all started with Lewis Carroll and Alice, but then you've got Tolkien and you've got C.S. Lewis and Philip Pullman. And I believe there are more writers per square mile in Oxford than anywhere else in the world. <laughs> um, but yes, I think you can get lectures every day almost a free on almost any subject. Uh, uh, so I think it's a mixture. I think more than Cambridge, it is town and girl. And I like that and I like that friction. So I think I've taken quite a lot of Chinese students who it seems to me when they come to Oxford, they just stay between the station and Summertown. And I introduced them to the Cowley Road Carnival and their minds were blown. So there is a, an Oxford beyond the university. And one of my castaways was Bill Heiner. He uh, came from America and he'd actually uh, worked for Robert Kennedy for a little while during the uh, civil rights movement. And he built those cinemas with um, arms and legs. But also uh, the artist, John Buckley, made the shark in Bill Heiner's roof. And to me, that shark is really important. It is that you have to expect the unexpected. So for, for listeners who may not uh, be aware, the shark is, is a very famous shark house in um, New High Street in Headington. Um, and it's uh, this giant shark that's crashed through the roof of a terraced house. Yeah, yeah. but I interviewed the, um, the artist who made it too. And John Buckley is a very much underestimated artist. So he went to Cambodia during just about the end of the Pol Pot regime and war and it traumatized him a bit actually and he came back with lots of homemade artificial limbs that people who had their limbs blown off had used to get to hospital to get proper prosthetics and he made an exhibition touring you know, the country with it but and, and nearly all his work seems to be right at that edge of horror in the world to be frank so but he and Bill they were talking about the time when uh, 
bombers were leaving nearby, you know, Upper Hayford for Libya. And they were just thinking about what it must feel to suddenly have a bomb land on you. And that was the inspiration for the shark. Oh, right. I didn't know that. So they had a sort of quirky take on actually something that was potentially um, quite horrific. Yeah. And in fact, um, Bill's castaway choice was another sculpture by John. And it was called Embrace. And it's two figures that were bound together very tightly with bandages. And they said they'd made it to go on the top of the Berlin Wall. And I, but of course, as soon as they dug down it, and the wall came down. So I said to them, well, I think there's a wall much closer than that, and that's in Belfast. Why don't you take it there? And in fact, they did go and see the mayor of Belfast. And the, but the mayor of Belfast said, no, it wouldn't be suitable to go on the wall, but you could put it in a park. <laughs> so it's still, as far as I know, it is still in John's studio near Wallington. <laughs> and so I, it just occurred to me that actually I haven't asked you about your books. We've talked about Oxford and your life, um, and um, uh, but you uh, are author of several books, um, including Sculpting the Elephant. Um, could you um, um, tell us something about how you got into novel writing and, and, uh, and what your books uh, 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 are generally about? Well, that's another chance story. Um, I used to review shows for the uh, Oxford Times and there was this exhibition at the Ashmolean. It was the first exhibition by a living artist as a one-man show and he was a Chinese artist called Chile Lei and his exhibition was called Everyone's Life is an Epic and it's one of the most moving exhibitions I've ever been to. For instance, the homeless man, he'd asked him to write on the picture his philosophy of life. And the homeless man had written, you are not a failure until you stop trying. And of course, Chu Lei Lei, who is an international, you know, brilliant calligrapher, put it on the other side of the picture in, in wonderful calligraphy. And I kept going back to that exhibition and in fact, I saw a homeless man from the Simon Hostel in front of that portrait. And I don't think many homeless men ever used to go into the Ashmolean. But there he was standing in front of that portrait in tears. Now, I knew I'd like this man, but I also guessed that his was the epic life. So I asked Chris Gray, who was the arts editor, if I could do a profile feature on him, and he agreed. So I went to Wimbledon and, of course, discovered his was the epic life. Now, I'd actually done some Chinese history when it was very unusual at college, and I'd kept it up. I thought I was reasonably well informed about China, but he told me the story of the Stars Art Movement, of these really brave artists who marched under a banner to Tiananmen Square, which said, in politics, we want democracy and in art, freedom. I later asked Wang Keping, the sculptor, what he thought that morning when he got up. And he said, I burnt all my letters. I burnt all my diaries, anything with a name on, because I didn't think I was coming back. Now, we think of the impressionists as being brave, but they 
They weren't putting their lives on the line, only their reputations. So I thought, well, why don't these artists, aren't, aren't they better known? I mean, Chulele is the most outstanding artist, both technically and, well, and also from the heart. And we, he's not well known in the West, really. And I really wanted to tell the story of the stars. So basically, I started interviewing Chulele and his friends. Um, and I went to China with him. But we began to realize that actually it would be better not to do it as a non-fiction book, but to do it as a novel. So I invented the character of Little Winter and her story. So the background detail has all come really at, at the beginning part, but not the end. Um, the first half, the background detail is really very much from Chulo Lai, and I was so privileged. I mean, his father was one of the most famous authors of China. Chu Bo uh, wrote Tracks in the Snowy Forest, and Madame Mao used one of uh, used that book for one of her model options. He knew Mao. He knew uh, Lin Biao. He knew Chow and Lai. Um, so I was hearing stories that are nowhere else, nowhere else. However, so then I did the Diploma in Creative Writing to feel comfortable writing fiction. And when I'd written it, I sent it to agents. But the agents came back saying, oh, yes, this is interesting. It's well written. It's publishable. But you're not Chinese, so we wouldn't be able to sell it. So I didn't think it would ever see the light of day. But a friend of mine on the diploma course told me about Katie Isbis, a Canadian lady who had just started at a very tiny publishing company called Claret Press. She said, well, you can just send it to her through her website. You don't need an agent for her. So I did, and Katie published it, and it was also, the rights fortunately were sold in Germany, so last year it came out in German. And can you tell us the name of the book? Brushstrokes in Time. Yeah. Um, so, but unfortunately, it had a bad experience in the States because a very wonderful company called, again, a small company called Central Audiobooks made a wonderful, absolutely fantastic audiobook of it, which was starting to sell well. So, so Catherine decided that she would put a few adverts on some uh, Southeast Asian uh, Facebook pages. And immediately the reaction was cultural appropriation because I'm English, despite the fact that I'd spent so many years <laughs> interviewing Chule Lega for these unique stories, right from the eyewitness account. Everything, most of the early bits are all eyewitness accounts, really. Um, so really, it, it sort of, so it is very hard to get it out there. So it wasn't reviewed by any you know, wasn't nobody big takes any notice of the Indies. So um, then she said to me, you know, about another one, because she did admire the book. And um, I'd started writing Sculpting the Elephant before, but it wasn't called that then. <laughs> called The Well-Traveled Chest of Drawers. And uh, the chest of drawers I own, actually, it's behind here. And it went to India and back, which was quite common, you see, because during the Raj, you had to go to India by sea and you could have a cabin that was empty or full or furnished. If you had it empty, you took your own furniture 
with which you could start in, you know, New Zealand or Australia or India or wherever. And um, so this particular family had this 12 door chest of drawers made, which obviously would have taken nearly all their stuff. And they took it to Missouri where they taught and uh, it came back again. So I just imagined it for oh, my Victorian maverick, Bartholomew Carew, uh, his, his scientific instruments and his, his letters and papers and photographs. And that this artist come antique dealer doesn't want to buy this chest of drawers, but he wants what's on top of it. And so he has no choice and he gets into a row with his business partner who hates it. But um, that's the link between the contemporary story, which is um, a story between an, an Indian historian, a female Indian story called Rama, and this artist from Oxford, but of a working class of origin called uh, Harry King. And the two unlikeliest people to meet, to have a relationship. So in a way, a bit like Atom and I. But the last book, actually, my third novel, is very unusual in that I've written it with somebody else. Um, I've, in, I've been involved in um, something called KOA. I was involved for 40 years. I was chair for 16. And we, every year, raise money for an overseas project. So Can you that. tell us what, what KOA is? It was called Kennington Overseas Aid when it started in 1969. And then we kind of just shortened it as, as, the, as, as our sort of perspective changed a bit. So we just called it KOA. And um, so we tended to raise money for small charities, very grassroots, that we then, you know, after I became chair. So before that, it was the big ones. But then when I became chair, we changed the focus a bit. And so I met Nancy Mandenya Hunt through the Nassio Trust. And she is such an inspirational person. Uh, she was born in Kenya, and um, she was started. She didn't really want to start the Nassio Trust, but <laughs> it happened. That's her story to tell. And um, she also had been working for the Thames Valley Police as a diversity trainer after experience. She and her family experienced a very racist incident, which wasn't handled very well by the police. And she was approached by the local community police officer at Ferensfield that kids, very disadvantaged kids, who were getting in trouble with the police. And the result of it was that she transformed those kids' lives with a project called Exit 7. And by taking them out of their environment, they took them to, I mean, they didn't have passports, they'd never been out of the country, most of them had never been to London, but she took them to Kenya. And they learned that they could do things, they could make a difference, and they discovered that they could be loved because wow. the kids adored them. And so that, when she asked me to write a book with her, I think she really meant a non-fiction book. <laughs> but uh, I've been suggested by Katie that I did a novella and self-published it on Amazon to try and build up my brand, as she called it. So I said to Nancy, would you like to write a novella? <laughs> so basically started to do it. And based upon Nancy's life experiences in the background, a bit like I've done with Chulay Lane and Just Breaks in Time. 
And when we sat down, so we, we developed, we decided what the characters were. And Precious um, uh, is, is the, the, the main character. But then Nancy said to me, you do realize when you cast me away and you asked me that question about my childhood, I'd never spoken to anyone in all my life, not even my husband about it. You see, she was the daughter of a tribal chief who got very annoyed when her mother gave birth to another daughter and he refused to name her and refused to register her birth. So when I'd asked a very simple prosaic question, which I often ask the castaways just to get going at the beginning, where were you born and when were you born? She said, well, I was born in Rosanda, but I have no idea where. And then she explained, when, sorry, you, know, so, so you get the idea. So that was our lead into this story. And so that came out this year. And um, so, yeah, so one in China and, and, and America, one in Oxford and India, and now one in London and, uh, and Kenya. But all completely, most of them all completely, I don't know, come out of the blue somehow. I think just I've got to know you a little bit over the last few months since I moved and you've been very a, a very kind and warm uh, new friend um, uh, taking me about and showing me Oxford and and we've been chatting um, and I'm so excited and delighted that you you agreed to come on the podcast um, what what I what has struck me about you throughout all this is that you are passionate about other people's stories um, and that um, you know Nancy Hunt stories Chulele stories um, all the stories of the castaways um, uh, and you're always championing these people that you know when 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 we've been just talking over um, you know a cup of coffee sitting on that log in the freezing cold and you were just telling me and um, it's just you're telling me all about these inspirational people these exciting people that you think you know this person is wonderful this person is really you know um, creative and the way that you champion other people I, I think it's it's a real gift that you have and I, and I feel that your books I haven't read them yet but I feel that your your books come out of your writing comes out of of, of that your creativity comes out of that um, love and passion for uh, people's stories um, and every, and the world around you um, and it's a it's a wonderful quality and, and I've been really enjoying the energy of your friendship um, and so uh, to, to kind of bring everything to 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 a sort of uh, wrap it all up um uh, um if if people want to you know um when when we get, ever get out of lockdown <laughs> and people want to come and visit oxford um and i would urge everybody to because it's such a wonderful city um could you um just give the give them a little virtual tour if, if you could give them a tour of the places and the people that you'd say well if you only have an afternoon in oxford this is what you need to see this is what you need to know i don't know if you can fit that in in the next five minutes or so <laughs> oh no i i think you don't you do need longer than an afternoon and i think and, and oddly enough is it people come and the, the guidebooks will tell you all about the university so you know you've only got to take out any books and you'll be told where to go in the university. But I remember when I was at Jam Factory, there was a, a teacher who always came every year with a group of children from Italy, teenagers. Oh, and wait, I I've got to pause, and you've got to explain what the Jam Factory is. Oh, sorry, yes. Um, it was Oxford Antique Centre. So it was, um, it was originally Cooper's Oxford Marmalade Factory, it's right opposite the station. 
and we had the ground floor for an art and antique centre. We also had a bookshop and a cafe called the Marmalade Cat and 30 dealers, but we also had services of the kind you see in the, the repair shop nowadays. <laughs> um, so we were very popular with tourists as well as the locals. And she uh, would come every year. And I discovered that she had never been to the river. And I said, well, you know, you've got to go to Ifly. You've got to, there's, a, there's the sort of steamer you can go, you could take your kids just for half an hour up to Ifly take them to the most beautiful church in the area and then you could walk back along you know the towpath but I said the one of the glorious things of England is the footpaths there are tens and tens of thousands of miles of public footpath signs so you just get out get out onto the don't just stay in the city <laughs> get out on the footpath get walking you know get by the river um so, yeah, and, and I suppose, uh, but yes, you, you've got to explore the Ashmolean, you've got to um, go around the Bodleian, um, and you've got to go in Blackwells, down into the Norrington Room, which goes underneath Trinity College. But no, I, I, I think... Um, and, and Blackwell is, is, is a fantastic bookshop. It's, it's a university bookshop. It's got lots of all the sort of very deep and heavy and complicated books um, for, the, for the students, but it's also got a load of general books um and and as you say it, it's got that sort of st um it's, it's like a labyrinth isn't it you go down and down and down yeah yeah but then if you have if you're here for longer then why not go to jericho um there's a canal at the bottom and the canal itself is a fantastic history and you can walk along it's a great you can cycle you can walk along the canal and um, it was where the, you find the Oxford University Press. So during the 19th century, um, the people who ran it actually were the early patrons of the Pre-Raphaelites and the Arts and Crafts Movement. And they built St Barnabas's Church. And if you go inside that, you'll find it's very unusual. It's very much more arts and crafts, um, you know, in, in its stuff. And then, in in the obviously Jericho is in my book because that's where Harry's uh, shop called Deco Rated is, but where he also creates his art, and it's right opposite the Jericho Tavern, where the, the town has a has a big history because that's where the Oxford Rock movement was. So that's where Ride, Radiohead, and Superglass all began. So. You know, there's a lot more to Oxford than just the, and I don't want to undermine because I love the university, I love what it does, I love the buildings, and I love the culture and the learning. So I'm not running anything down, but I'm just saying that there are other aspects to Oxford which, because the university is so dominant, people miss. They miss the Cowley Road Carnival. They miss uh, that. Can Sunday. you say a bit more about the Cowley Road Carnival? <laughs> well, Obviously, most immigrants, when they come to any city, have to find what's the cheapest accommodation. And that used to be East Oxford and Cowley, you know, the car, the car workers in Cowley. And so East Oxford became a place where you find black people, brown people, people of every colour. <laughs> every, you know, nowadays you'll see the mosque there. 
of course. But, you know, it's also the place to eat for every kind of cuisine down, down the road. And, but I think one of my castaways was Euton Daly. And he was the director of the Pegasus Youth Theatre, which um, is in East Oxford. But, you know, it was so difficult for him to raise the money to make that into a proper purpose-built theatre, not that damp, poor, temporary buildings that it used to be in. Because there is a class divide still in this country. You don't have to scrape very far to still find that class divide. So he was absolutely inspirational. So he and also um, another wonderful woman of West Indian ancestry, who's one of my castaways, is Eicheline Smith. She, uh, her husband died very young and she got three children and she had to try and make ends meet with three jobs. She had no savings, no money at all. But when she saw a young white man digging in a dustbin for food, she was just so moved. And she started the Cowley Road Soup Kitchen. I mean, she, she still cooks for it now in her 80s. And, uh, but you know, as an, when she did a bit of nursing in what was then East Oxford uh, Community Hospital, there were quite a lot of patients who didn't want her to touch them with her, her black hand. And there's, there's not a woman in this, in this town who's more warm and loving than Eicheline. So basically, those kind of people, like, um, were behind the Cowley Road Carnival. They wanted to celebrate this West Indian particularly this West Indian culture, as in the Notting Hill Carnival. But of course, because it's so diverse, it became, the county road country is slightly different. You'll find there's much more, you'll find more Indian cultures and, uh, and so on. You know, people from all sorts of different parts of the world taking part, uh, as, as well as, you know, West Indian ancestry people. Wonderful, thank you. So now, um, just uh, before we finish off, you're, you said uh, you've been right. You, you are currently writing your memoir. Um, can you give us a, a, a sort of a trailer? <laughs> what to expect, and when will it come out? Well, of course, I just started it after the no, just because of COVID and different things. Just thinking for my family, and then I don't know. And I thought, oh, I don't know what I read it. And then Katie got in touch with me before Christmas, and she said oh, uh, send me what you've been writing. Well, she liked it. And so she might be interested in publishing it, but she wants it to be that I'm like a conduit from white empire to multicultural Britain. So in a way, this story is told in the background of my life, in, the bit, in a way that I've told, you know, in, in lots of black and white, the story of Precious against the background of these experiences that Nancy's had. And similarly, with Brushstrokes in Time, you know, this story that's told against the background of real events. Um, so she wants me to do a similar sort of thing, really, with my own story. And actually, it's, it is, it, and so it has spurred me on. And it has actually, it's an interesting challenge. And actually, I've realized that probably I have got quite a bit to say, really, from a very unique perspective, because most of these culture, multicultural stories are told from the point of view of the person of colour. White women married to brown or black men, you, you don't hear their story anywhere. So even if you think of Barack Obama, 
is the first black president. He's not actually. He's the first man of colour, but obviously his his and, and the journalists were all taken by the story of his father, his absent father. But few showed much interest in his mother and her grandparents and, and her parents, who really brought him up. They're kind of whitewashed out of the life. So my feeling is that perhaps um, I have got a slightly unique story to tell that's not really told anywhere else. I think that's that is interesting because also you know there is a perspective of you know change within a, a dominant culture, um, and that some people find it hard, um, uh, harder than others, and others embrace change, um, and it's. Um, you know both perspectives are have have value and and interest in in itself so what what's the what's the um uh, the the title of your memoir and do you do you have a sense of when you're going to finish it and and be uh, be sending it <laughs> off to, I, to kate oh i don't know i mean that's, it's i've called it the food of love a tasty memoir because in fact at the end of each chapter i've got a recipe nice because uh it's the story of my life i mean you know, food is part of that as well. I mean, one of my best friends is actually the best-selling author in Italy called Simonetta Agnello Hornby. So, of course, you know, she's giving me a recipe, you see, from Italy. And and Yuta's giving me a, um, a West Indian one. But, of course, I've got lots of... I've got my mother's to begin with. I've got my sister, a Chinese sister-in-law's. <laughs> and uh, my son's... Um, uh, uh, in-laws started the first Indian restaurant on the Cowley Road. It was called the Moonlight, and uh, so of course I'm going to have some of that. So, so as well as uh, as well as the story, at the end of each chapter, there's going to be a recipe, and there's going to be a kind of a little river of food, actually, because to me, it's a way for people people to perhaps think slightly differently, because food is part of it, it comes from very different cultures, but it doesn't bring that kind of negative uh, kind of connotation with it. It's a kind of it's it's the idea of exploring different tastes, different ways, and celebrating them and enjoying them rather than being afraid. So to me, uh, so that's going to be uh, the theme really. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And and that is a wonderful way to um, approach multiculturalism um, uh, through through the stomach and the taste buds. <laughs> wonderful. Um, Sylvia Vetter, thank you so much. Um, now, if people want to find out more about you and your books, uh, where should they go? Well, because my publisher, Claret Press, is very tiny, um, you know, that's obviously, you hope to go there, but I have a website. Uh, so, and I have a Facebook page, and um, and I'm quite happy to have new friends on on Facebook. Uh, quite welcome from that. Um, there are about sixty reviews, mostly five star flash books on time on Amazon, which have got quite interesting comments. So you can, if you're interested in 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 that that story of the chart of the stars art movement background. Um, if you look on Amazon and read some of the reviews, I think you'll get a good sense, um, you know, of, of it. But yes, but I think probably the best place is my own website. Which is sylviavetter.co.uk, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Oh, there's one other little thing, though. I've, I'm, I'm in on the beginning of something new, and it's called um, the Oxford Indie Book Fair. And of course, it had to be cancelled last year. 
but we started a magazine to try and keep it going. And, and it, it, the magazine is really meant for independent, for, for bookshops, as opposed to Amazon, small publishers, and particularly for writers who haven't got, like myself in a way, who haven't got agents. So, and it's available online and it's free. And we are starting actually also to do a few printed copies to help you know, promote it. But we do hope that in that we, we, we hope that November the 22nd, it, we actually, this year, it will actually happen. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, wonderful. Sylvia Vetter, thank you very much for being on Creative Conversations. My Creative Conversation today was with Sylvia Vetter. There are photos and links to some of the things we talked about on the show notes page. You can go there using the bit.ly short link, which is bit.ly bit.ly forward slash creative conversations hyphen podcast. Or you can go to tigerspirit.co.uk forward slash blog and click through to creative conversations. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Creative Conversations podcast, please share it with your friends wherever you share stuff. Or you can subscribe to the show or leave us a lovely review on anchor.fm, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Spotify. You can find it on Spotify by searching for Creative Conversations and my surname, Ui, O-O-I. All this will help more people hear about the show. The Creative Conversations podcast is produced by tigerspirit.co.uk. The podcast web link again is bit.ly bit.ly forward slash creative conversations hyphen podcast. I'm Yang Mei Ui. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook as at tigerspirituk. Thanks for listening and see you next time.